Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Uh, welcome to Greenlit. Uh, my name is Ryan Gibson. I'm, I'm Alex Collegian. As always, joined by Alex Collegian. Today, we're joined by Craig Perry, producer with such films as the American Pie franchise, the Final Destination franchise, and the Cats and Dogs franchise, as well as many others. Craig, thanks for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> and we hope we pass the audition. You did. It sounded special. <laughs> so, Craig and I go way back when. I forget when, but known each other for a long time. And I consider you not only one of the wisest men I've met in the business, but one of the funniest and one of the best raconteurs of showbiz tales ever. So, I have a lot to live up to, and clearly we'll have a lot to live down. So there we go. <laughs> you better tell some good stories, Craig. I've got a few. Okay. So, Craig, you were, well, you are a leading producer in the business. When I say you were, <laughs> is that you were a grown-up when I got to Hollywood, meaning you were a baller <laughs> when I was a pisher, okay? Uh, what I was was astoundingly lucky when you were able to get here, and I was fortunate enough to meet you at a point where I would do my best to help. <laughs> okay. I don't want to start the ball rolling, but my awareness of you was Zide Perry. Zide Perry was shorthand for, hey, hey, writers in Hollywood, you got to get with Zide Perry because those guys are doing deals. We were very lucky. I, I partnered with Warren, um, good gravy. It was probably 90, end of 97, I think is when we, we first sort of joined forces. I mean, he and I had met uh, at both of our respective first jobs, which was in the mailroom at New Line Cinema back in 91. And we just obviously stayed in touch. We can go over sort of like the history of story, but we were at a time where there was such an appetite for material. I think people don't realize that when DVD kind of hit the marketplace, it provided a second revenue stream for studios. So if you think back to the days when they were like, you know, 10 movies getting released every weekend, because theatrical was in some ways a loss leader. Like you could release a movie like, Holly I mean, remember Hollywood Pictures, Touchstone yeah. Pictures, Disney, they were releasing, you know, 60 movies a year because it didn't matter because you had this thing as a backstop called DVD. And every Tuesday, you'd go down to Blockbuster or Amoeba or any of the places and you could pick up the releases for that week. So people would buy things sight unseen and they'd say, oh, I missed it in the theater, but it's only eight bucks. Sure, I'll buy it. And it was an amazing amount of money that was being generated by that. So they needed to keep feeding that beast. So we started representing writers and going to all the studios and setting up, I think we set up 200 projects in three years. I mean, it was ridiculous how the appetite was because there was no end in sight to it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think as we can all speak, and it's probably on point for our later discussion, technology has a way of dictating everything and it has a way of dictating when things start, when things stop, and how far they'll go. And as DVD has been relegated to the dustbin of history, Hey. So was no, so was that period of time where there was a huge market with lots of appetite for people to buy things. I think people are more cautious now. And there's a whole sort of other side to it, but yeah, we had things. You know, we were able to do a lot of things. Very interestingly, we were one of the first management production companies to be out there. I, I got to give Warren great credit. He sort of blazed the trails for someone to actually represent writers and writers only. He was the first to do that. He was also the first to convert it into a first-look deal at a studio, whereas uh, a lot of people were just representing them and not actually attaching themselves as producers. Warren said, no, 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 I'm going to do it all, and I'm going to be a conduit by which all of my uh, roster of talent can feed material to me, and the ones that we set up at the studio that's paying for my overhead will be producers, and I'll reimburse my commission to the writer. And by coming up with that very simple formula, we were able to get ourselves attached to dozens and dozens of projects all over town. Uh, it was an incredible ride, and I don't think people realize what an incredibly fertile time that was to both be a writer, because there was a lot of opportunity, and also to be a producer, because there were more mail slots to put your different projects into. Right now, we have like six places you can take a, a project to. Back then, there were like 30. I remember we'd take a script out on a Tuesday, and this is before you actually attached it as a PDF on email. <laughs> we'd have like sometimes between 30 and 50 packages waiting to get picked up by the yeah. various people because we made them come to us 
to pick up the script. <laughs> it's really ridiculous, but it's pretty funny now to think about it. Well, then you're also calling to mind one of my favorite visuals is walking into uh, a production company and seeing these giant piles, literal giant piles of script up to the ceiling with the like chicken scrawled title on the spine. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a lost art that you don't see that anymore. That was a badge of courage. Like, this is what I read last week. What do you got for me now? It's true. I mean, sometimes you had between 25 and 30 scripts that you had to, I won't say fully read because I don't <laughs> think that's humanly possible, but you had to at least give a sense and get a sense. So I had one of those um, uh, plastic corrugated mail containers with mm-hmm. the handles that was yep. pretty sturdy. I brought that home every Friday and brought it back on Monday. Um, did you, did you have a, the, the, do you remember? Cause I was, that was my first job was I was a reader. So mm-hmm. I must've read like I was too. 500. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic thing, right? You're either schlepping cable on a set as a PA or you're a reader if you're an inside cat and lots of people had their methods. Like I lay two pillows behind me, lay on my bed. Then I have one pillow on my chest for the script. And then I, can't, like, they have all these I couldn't lay down because <laughs> nine times out of 10, I'm unconscious five minutes later. So right. I had three different places in at that time my incredibly tiny crappy apartment where there were guys shooting up in the stairwell leading up to my apartment i would come out in the mornings and some guy had busted a vein there'd be blood spray all over the walls and broken needles and i'd have to have the building manager come hose out the hallway which is another thing don't think you come out to hollywood and it's instant you know caviar glory and going out to lunch you got to put the work in and sometimes you know the resources you have are nothing more than you know the brain in your head and your capacity to not sleep so we can certainly get to to that part of it as well i'm going to add a master of segue to your resume because that's exactly what i wanted to ask you is sure that to me that is the the beginning of the second act of the craig perry we're in the money montage kind of deal i want to hear <laughs> the I don't want to hear the first chapter about my dad was a shoe polish salesman door to door, whatever. I want to hear how you got to Hollywood. What, did you always have the bug? And what was like the, the first toehold into the business? I will. I appreciate the question. I will do my best to distill it into an entertaining but short narrative because <laughs> Lord knows. Well, I've been fortunate <laughs> that I've always sort of known what I wanted to do in the respect that my first fascination was, was trains when I was two, and then pirates when I was three and four, and then movies when I was five. And I actually attribute me watching the original 1933 King Kong inside the den at my parents' house and being fascinated by how they pulled that off is the thing that started the dominoes of my interest. Um, By the time I was eight, my father uh, did have a Super 8 camera, and I started making movies by with my friends at eight years old. Now, this is back in the day where we were sort of ripping off Jaws and all the sort of Spielbergian things. We're doing the kids version down at our Cape House and like running around the woods and doing little animated movies. But it made me appreciate how challenging it is to do it, which also, I think, instilled even further in me the desire to do it because it was such a challenge. I wanted to figure out how. So back in those days, like, you know, you have Star Wars and you have, uh, I think the movie that changed everything for everybody was Rocky because it didn't really have the happy ending that people remember, but it had the happy ending for the character. And that, I think, begat the need for Star Wars, which became a huge, like, we're out of the early 70s where everything is sort of dour and the independent model is working in the introspection, and people just want to feel good about themselves and the world. And that kind of changed the way I think Hollywood began to make movies because the appetite was there. People just wanted to feel good. And yet it also allowed for people to look behind the curtain a bit more. If you remember back in those days, everyone was talking about how did they do those special effects for Star Wars or the makeup effects for The Exorcist? And there was publications and books that you could read about how they did it. And that's the stuff that I was taking out of the library is to try and figure out how they made movies what they were. How were they able to do the conjuring tricks that allowed people to engage? I was fortunate. I kind of knew what I wanted to do, if not exactly what within the sort of ecosystem of Hollywood. At least I knew the ecosystem I wanted to land in. All through high school, I did continue to make little short films with my buddies. I actually wound up just as a way to make money. I did a video yearbook for my high school, which I did not have access to great technology, but I did have access to a VHS that had a half, I had a 15 frame rollback so that it could keep the control track without any breakup. So did I you, edited Did you wear it on a I, purse? 
Because that's right. Uh, oh yeah, I had the purse thing. I I, I walked around senior year <laughs> videotaping everything, and then I had only gotten the idea actually after first semester. So I had to ask parents to give me the VHS tapes of the other sports games and other mm-hmm. events that they'd captured. So I, over a two day period with zero sleep, cut together an almost hour and forty minute video yearbook featuring class pages every class had their own individual pages there the whole thing and i sold it and i made two thousand dollars wow so i walked out of school with enough money to sort of finance all the projects i wanted to do freshman year wow. at syracuse where, university where i ultimately attended where oh, did nice. you where did you go to where did you grow up craig um, I grew up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, about as okay. far away from Hollywood as you could possibly imagine. Um, and I think because of that, I tried to move as far away from there as I could without falling into the ocean, which took me to LA after I graduated. But right. So I did wind up going to Syracuse University, and I went to the Newhouse School of Television, Radio, and Film, and I focused on production. But I also realized about junior year that I wasn't getting all the sort of history and theory and criticism, the stuff about why movies work as opposed to the nuts and bolts of how to capture them and make them. So I went to the visual and performing arts college and I negotiated so I could have a dual major. One was in television, radio and film production through Newhouse. And it's not a major. I I minored in theory, history and criticism from the visual and performing arts because they had more of those critical studies classes available. So I did that for theory, history, and criticism. So I was able to get both sides of the coin, uh, which I think has been immeasurably helpful in me being able to speak with creative people like yourselves. Because when you can reference other movies and reference other narratives and other elements of artistic process, uh, as well as even history or psychology, it just infuses any project you're making with like a common lingua franca. And you, the creative people can feel comfortable that you're not a complete imbecile. <laughs> and you can also just make it better than it was before you can elevate it. But any of it. That's uh, so I graduated in 90 and immediately came out to Hollywood. Uh, actually, that's not true. I spent the summer painting houses to get a little bit of capital so I could come out here without completely. So did I. Being poverty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I should uh, say I painted houses and then I actually shot some wedding videos as well. So you basically packed up your life. You had never been out here before. You, you came out here. That's not entirely true, actually. The summer between freshman and sophomore year. It turns out that a girl that I went to high school with, her sister was the director of development for Arnold Copelson. Now I called this woman and introduced myself, told her what the connection was and asked her if she had any internships available. Now she did not, uh, but she had been talking about putting together a program for the company. So I kind of flew out anyway and showed up. So I'd been working there for about a week before she said, you know, we never really had a program in place. I'm like, but I'm here. So yeah. I spent the summer basically doing lug- grunt work at the office for Arnold Kobelson, uh, which included going to his house and to his garage and organizing all the files. I, I, I had like original signed copies of contracts with John Belushi's signature on it, which was kind of cool to see, you know? Nice. But I think the, my favorite part of that summer where I learned an incredible amount, just being in the place where, you know, they, he was in the wake of Platoon. They had done Warlock, which was the kind of fun favorite of mine. But two days before I left to come back and go back to school, I was actually up in the front of the lobby and a man staggered in looking like he was just getting off of uh, the helicopter and platoon. And he said, here, give this to Arnold. I never want to see it again. Oh my God, this is a bear. And I took it. It was the first draft of The Fugitive. That was David Toohey handing it in the first draft. Wow. Now, Arnold asked me to do notes on it on the plane, which I did. And I faxed them back when I got there. And I still have that draft somewhere. Oh, so you talked about draft. earlier you know, having a hard copy draft of it. I still have it in storage, so that's kind of nice. Before we move on, yeah. let, you know, let's pour one out for Arnold Kolpesen. Uh, I know one of the I, last of the old old school. He was as legendary a caricature and a character as you can imagine. And I will always remember he had actually had open heart surgery just before I got there for the internship, so I didn't see or hear much of him for the eight weeks that I was in LA that summer. But he did come back prior to me leaving about two weeks prior to, and he made a point of taking an hour out of his sort of reintegration schedule to just sit and talk with me, just a lowly intern about who I was, where I came from, what I wanted. I'll never, I'll never forget how generous that was for he didn't know me from Shinola. Like he didn't care. Like he was Arnold Culpeson and I was this, this kid out for an internship but he took a point to take interest in both me and what I wanted to do. 
And I've always tried to give that back as often as I can, because it's so hard mm-hmm. to get a toehold in. It's so hard to find people who will be generous with their time and their advice that I've just taken that as an object lesson as to how I would like to treat others given the way he treated me at that weird intersection in both of our lives. I absolutely agree. I, I always wanted to know, I mean, you know, you're, you're a well-rounded enough guy. You're not so, I mean, we do have a lot of friends that all they do and all they talk about and all they socialize with are film and TV people. But you look at other industries, finance, law, you know, you name it. And there is a sort of robust mentor community or mentoring tradition. And I don't, I know, I mean, maybe I missed out on it, but I never had one. I always wanted one. You know, uh, what do you think that is? Is it fear that the the young guy is going to cut your throat and take your job? Like, why is that? Honestly, I think it's a little bit of that. Whenever I have an opportunity to speak to students, many times they say, well, when I go and ask for a job, I'm like, stop. That's your first mistake. You never ask for a job. You ask for advice. You literally show up on a plane and just kind of go in and start working. <laughs> well, there's that. But no, you, all, you just it's ask like for advice. <laughs> truly, like you ask for advice and you, well, there's, two fa- there's two sides of this. You ask for advice and usually if the person loves to sort of dispense their wisdom. But if you're not asking something of them that either requires a lot of expenditure of political or social capital and you just want their advice, people respond positively to that. So then one month, two months, three months down the road when an opportunity comes up, they'll think of the person who wasn't asking for them to sort of lay it out. They'll, oh, they'll call you and say, hey, I have an opportunity for you. Because you didn't ask for the job, you just asked for the advice. I have never failed by just asking for advice. I mean, we'll get to it a little bit later, but there's a whole thing with Bob Shea at New Line, which is just about getting advice from him and not asking him for anything but his access to his experience, which most people, no matter how grumpy, they're perfectly fine. They love to talk about what they've done or, or, or show how smart they are. That's a, that's a very good point. In fact, you know, my favorite is the Spielberg example where he literally did sneak onto the lot at Universal in a suit and occupied an empty office for some weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's like forgiveness, then permission. Now, to be fair, things have changed. I think yeah. the internet has uh, like you know, yeah. uh, has brought the crazies out. You can't really do that anymore. But I think it demonstrates that you have to put yourself out there. You have to make yourself vulnerable so that you have opportunities to find uh, luck. Because everything that's ever happened to me has not been, I think, a function of me being smart. It's a function of me being lucky, but being smart enough to know when I'm being lucky and then to capitalize on it. There's nothing worse than when you're driving home going, huh, I totally missed that moment because it never comes back. That's really all it is, is knowing when there's a, there's a, a chance for opportunity and to capitalize on it. And that's just luck. You're never going to sort of create a scenario where your genius is going to unfurl like a flag and everyone's going to salute. It's just about knowing when to say the right thing at the right time and to know when the right time is happening. I, I know it's early in our, in our shows, you know, in, in our line of shows, Alex, but I have to say that I, I really do think eventually the throughput of this whole series is going to be luck. Oh, like, no. We the, knew that day one. Everyone, yeah. I, I think... Everyone who listens to this show has to understand you have to be prepared for when the opportunity happens. But just like Craig is saying, and I think, uh, I, I also think that, um, last week, Tony Jaswinski actually said it too, is that there is a certain amount of luck, but it's, pre- it's almost like prepared luck. You yes. have, to, yeah, there's a, there's a preparation involved. And I think that's a, I really do think that that's, that's going to be a through line. When, pe- when preparation meets opportunity. Right. Now there mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. Seneca. Totally. They were t- <laughs> in the, in, in the Sen- Roman Seneca. film business. Right. In the Roman Seneca was an intern. <laughs> and as we know. Uh, to, you know, Pontius. And, yeah. uh, you know, and we know how that turned out. Yeah. <laughs> had a good run for a few yeah. years. Yeah. And ever, so, you know, ever thus. But yeah, re- really good point, Craig. And, and absolutely. Well, it's, let, it's let me frustrating, look, but it's true. It is true. But look, look here's I'll, I'll let me fast forward. So I did wind up getting a job at New Line Cinema in the mailroom, which is gold, the hold on the golden era. You got to describe this. Sure, now. New Line was still on their Doheny Drive yes. offices. Um, it was still independently Across owned by Bob a, Shea fancy, and Michael Lynn. What's the fancy restaurant that was oh, uh, God. the patio? No, yeah, the, yeah, the one with the patio. Yeah, I know what yeah, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it was in Get Shorty. 
The one yeah. where that was like the baller lunch place. Yeah, which I never went to because I was never really. And a I never went to because I was never a baller when it was yeah, cool. <laughs> it still is a baller joint, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So you finagled your no, way. I, 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 but the finagling was as simple as I sent out like 80 resumes to places using yeah, this. Yeah, but you had Copelson on it by now, right? So you had a little bit of Zazz? Uh, a little bit, but no one really cared. No one really gives a shit no. about like the internship you did two years earlier for like two months. It doesn't really matter. You mean what have you? Here's lesson two: luck is one. Two is what have you done for me lately? There's that, but also uh, most people just need a warm body who seems somewhat sentient and can, can maintain an upright position, and that's all you need in the mailroom is someone who's not a complete chowderhead. So I just represented as not a complete chowderhead. I have nothing more than that to offer. But I got in there, and that was the only time anyone ever asked me where I went to school, which I think is hilarious because people are like, oh, I went to Harvard. Well, no one cares. Just do the work. I spent about, I would say, six months in the mailroom there. Uh, I wound up being the head of the mailroom only because Warren Zide, who was in the mailroom with me, who ultimately became my partner, which became Zide Perry, you know, six years later, he had gone on to be Robert Newman's assistant over at ICM at the time. So when he left, I assumed the reins. The thing that I, another, another moment I learned in the mailroom is I, uh, and it's kind of how my whole career started, is uh, there was, Back then, there was no voicemail there. You had to take notes, like on the little like thing. You get the little receipts. Yeah, and you lazy rip season. the carbon oh, yeah. thing. The carbon you're... thing, totally. So <laughs> when the receptionist went off for her lunch hour, the people in the mailroom, myself included, would jump at the helm of the main reception desk to take phone calls during lunch. And as I was sort of doing that task, a woman came in and sat down, and she was about to have an interview, an interview with the vice president of business affairs to be his assistant. So I was giving her advice and telling her what he was like and what the the, the office was like and the demeanor and the attitude, just to give her a leg up because I could. She ultimately did not get the job, though, but she did get the job as the assistant to the vice president at Silver Pictures, Joel Silver's company over at the Warner Brothers lot. Now they had an opening for a reader, and I had sent my resume in four months or five months earlier. And when she was going through the stack of resumes, she picked one up, saw my name, remembered me and walked into her boss and said, you should hire this guy. So I went from one of about 500 resumes to the one at the top of the heap by doing nothing more than not being an asshole, by helping her out when I could, because it was no, no, it was no cost to me. It was easy to do. And she paid it back. And that was another big lesson for me in weird Hollywood karma is it's so much harder to be a dick. It's so easy to be cool and nice to people. And people keep track of that. They take, there is a, there is a a calculus that goes into everyone's interaction with each other. If they remember you as somebody who can be trusted, who's not an asshole, who's a decent enough guy and will like do what you say you're going to do. Yes, there are monsters who get ahead in the business, but they have to sleep with themselves and go to bed at night if they can. I sleep very well at night because I don't have to worry about that. I, I, I have no issues about how I've comported myself on a day-to-day basis. And that little interaction there proved to me that there is upside to not being an asshole. And it got me the job as the reader at Silver Pictures, which literally started my entire legitimate career. So you covered a lot of stuff. That, by the way, again, Joel Silver, I mean, the name, you know, Bob Shea, DeLuca. I mean, these guys were the legends. Mm-hmm. DeLuca Bob. was, I think, director of development when I started there. At, he was probably, at, he was probably only two years older than you, by the way. Uh, I think he's Young five man. years. He's okay, five years. I mean, older. you know, just you guys were kids, you know. Oh, we were zygotes in sneakers. Yeah, yeah. It was I mean, Shea was like, that's the joke is Shea was probably 50. And I remember, yeah. thinking, oh, he's as old as the hills, you know, so. But all right, so here's the uh, another constant ri- mystery wrapped in an enigma for a young person coming up in Hollywood, and we all and you you saw it, I saw it, Ryan saw it, every person I know saw it, which is the choice, right? Mm-hmm. You're a young person. There's only a couple of ways in, like you said, it's a mailroom at a production company, it's a mailroom at an agency, it's a you know low low person on the total a lowly position. Set. Yes. And the first, and that's an achievement. It's usually my mother's brother's cousin. And Mm -hmm. the more of a hustler you are, the more vague a connection it is. But you just keep saying, I don't care. I got to get there. And you get there. And then the next thing is, okay, kid, we'll give you a shot. And Ryan, you can speak to this on set. I I literally, uh, just to go back real quick, I literally begged for my first 
my first at my after my first interview to get the PA job. <laughs> mm-hmm. I literally, I literally, she said, I, she looked at me and she's uh, like, "I'm not really sure we can use you." And I said, "I please, I know this is my shot. We please." And she said. Okay, you start Monday. <laughs> I almost got a. Uh, subsequently, I had to get on my knees later on to beg for to keep my job, but that's a different story. But I've been on my knees. I, I, got, I got I got on my knees for job security. Right, right. And I'm not talking sexually. I'm talking like literally. But that first yeah. foray into the business is like that, and you, well, that well, bottom well, rung right, thing. Yeah, I by, knew by that, that was then. You're not yeah, leaving that. You're not leaving that room without a job, yeah, yeah. right? But you know you what, know? Ryan? Let me ask you this, because this is what I, this is what I realized, and I think you'll probably do the same thing. There I was. I was reading two scripts a day. I had to do like uh, three pages of coverage for you, which means two pages of synopsis and one page of comments, and then ten on the weekends. So that's a lot of material. Do you have any of those? I found oh, I have them all. Box with mine. In I have hilarious. them all, and so they are hard. a combination of pathetic, brilliant, ridiculous. And hilarious. Brilliant only that sometimes I was clearly very tired and, and taking great joy in tearing a piece of material apart. I thought you actually were saying that the scripts were all these things, but you were saying your notes are all these things. Uh, well, yeah. The, no, yeah. So <laughs> I, the only time I ever saw coverage, even in the, in the coverage banks at Silver Pictures, that had a double yes. Because usually, you know, concept and writing, you have a yes or no. It's pretty binary. Uh, well, no, you can do a maybe, but that's sort of hedging your bets. Was there was two yeses, and it was for the script for seven. That's the only double yes I ever saw during wow. my time there. But I don't know if people who are listening to this will understand. But there's a thing called an open writing assignment. Now, if I have a project at a studio and they want to bring in another writer to kind of take a stab and make a different perspective on it, they let the agents in town know that there's a job opportunity here that they are looking for a writer to fill the spot and take on the task of rewriting the script. So you get a lot of samples to see who might be the right match. That's called a writing sample. So I was getting writing samples that I needed to do coverage on. And I realized very quickly, well, how can I possibly assess whether this particular writer in this sample is even viable for this particular project and what its needs are if I haven't read the project? So at that time, Silver Picture had 87 projects in development. So for the first two months of me being a reader, in addition to those two scripts a day and 10 on weekend and the occasional book they dropped in my lap, I read all 87 projects so that I would know what the hell I was talking about when a writing sample came in. Now, nobody asked me to do that. I just said to myself, well, how would I want this job to be done if I were the boss? Well, I better go do that because then at least I'm doing the job, right? But apparently that's not how people normally think. So when the time came and the story editor left to go to another position at another company, they looked around the field of bodies and said, well, Craig seems to know what's going on. Let's make him the story editor. So after four months of being a reader, I was promoted to story editor, which means I've never been an assistant in my entire time in Hollywood. I went right from being a reader to being an executive at the office with my name on a parking spot on the Warner Brothers lot at age 23. Now, again, not because I'm a genius, but because I just said, well, how, how can I do my job if I don't know information, if I, and, if I don't know how to assess this material? And it just made me, made me valuable. That's the differentiator. So step one, by any means necessary, you get in. And then step two, you're not a psycho, you're responsible, mm-hmm. and you bust ass. There's that, but there's something even more simple that I boiled it down to. Don't be an ass, be an asset. If you make yourself an <laughs> asset in whatever endeavor you embark on, you will go along for the ride no matter what happens because people see you as an additive plus. www.craigperrytshirts.com. You can order your... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they're like, they're like the, uh, the underwear. It's underwear. You can order underwear. Oh, uh, but, but Ryan, I'm sure when you were doing the production side of it, there were moments where you said, okay, I'm going to step up and put myself in the position to be responsible because I know what it takes to deliver on that responsibility. I'm as big as a house, so I just insert my place. I just get as close to people who are in power as possible and just make them feel uncomfortable. Loom over them. Loom over them and just try. Are you saying you're tall or wide or both? I'm, I, I think I'm a little bit of, I'm six five. So, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm six, six two and a half. half. My younger brother's six five. My cousins are six eight and six nine. We come from a family of pituitary gland giants. So, I'm yeah. with you, my friend. I'm with which you. I, which I think actually kind of helps in the, it does. It, it, it does help. We'll be right back. Thank you again for joining us on How I Got Greenland. I'd like to share with you one of our network partner shows that we like. The 10 News from Next Chapter Podcast and Small But Mighty Media. 
Some of you out there no doubt are parents, and some of you have nieces and nephews or have friends with little ones. With kids in your life, the one thing that is universal is that kids have lots of questions. If you want them to understand current events in a way that's not all doom and gloom, The 10 has you covered. It's 10 minutes of news and information that goes beyond the headlines and gives kids context for issues going on around the world with a splash of humor and trivia. The 10 features conversations with interesting guests like author Shannon Messenger, astronaut Terry Virts, and even Dr. Anthony Fauci. Season two just wrapped and all summer long, they've been airing special episodes of their best bingeable content for those long road trips. So listen to The 10 News wherever you get your podcasts or go to the10news.com to learn more. And now back to How I Got Greenlit. And we're back. Thanks for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. I think also stick close to people who... And this kind of goes with what you said earlier. Stick close to people who know what they're doing and just ask and, mm-hmm. and suck and learn, them, Yeah, just, just vacuum glean it up. the information. But on, from the reverse side, now that we're on the other side of that dynamic, it could be in production, it could be in development. I mean, you know, let's, let's not lament that most of the development classes now rest in peace, but production <laughs> is going, going gangbusters. And so you do have, you know, when you make lower budget movies as the, you know, the prime mover, the producer, the director, you're hiring a lot of people and you're looking at two different categories. An old hand, and I don't mean old, I just mean an experienced person sure. who is sick of the thing that they're doing, that they're making a good living at, uh, and they want to sort of shake it up. They want to remember why they got in the business, right? So in a DP category, it's, I'm shooting these commercials. I'm sick of looking at diapers. Da, 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 da. Uh, you, you're making this arty movie. This will be a nice change for me to remember why you know I did this in the first place. Or you get these you know scrappy younger people who their resumes are you know you can print on a Bazooka Joe comic, but they they're asking the right questions. They're bright eyed and bushy tailed. You you know you ask them their favorite movie and it's not something from two years ago. You know so. A lot of, you know, moving up in the ranks, I'm, I'm sure you can speak to this, Craig, is spotting talent and keeping them close, right? Because how many times have you gotten a call in the middle of the night, dude, I need a line producer, my guy flaked out or he got a better job and I need a blah, 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 right? And you just have that, re- the, oh, you know, I, this new kid I just work with, she'd be fantastic, you know? The challenge with that, and I agree with it, I, I, I am a big believer in finding the person who has been working for that legendary person because they are so hungry. They, they are going to all of the opportunity that you can provide for them. They're going to fill in that gap with their talent and they will most likely have the benediction of their sort of person who was, they were working under because that person doesn't want to have their charge go out into the world and screw up because it's a reflection on them. So in a weird way, you're getting all the benefit of that a list $10,000 a week person for a third of the price because they're going to make sure that their charge doesn't screw it up. But you try convincing a studio who needs plausible deniability by virtue of resume before you hire somebody. They're very loath to take that risk, even though it's economically advantageous. And yeah. creatively, you're giving somebody a shot. You know how it is when you guys got your shot? You killed yourself to make sure that you delivered. And that's what you want. Someone who's going to go above and beyond on every level. And if they've been sanctioned by whoever their boss was as good, or they wouldn't have stayed with them that long, you know they can deliver. But it's really hard from the executive perspective, to take a risk on someone new or relatively new to take over a department head position because there's a lot riding on that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was talking in terms of lower budget film. If you're, yeah, if you have a decent budget, you hire the best. Done. Next case. Especially at a studio level, that's why we get what we get. And we're going to talk about that in part two a little bit. That's why we get the material that we get now is that, you know, I, I could name a certain film about a certain A-list movie star and someone cloned him and he had a younger version of him and it's him versus him. There's some very big, big screenwriter names on that film. And I don't know if they were writing an invisible ink or whatever, but it's a perfect example of, I don't want to get fired. I'm going to pay triple retail for these screenwriters 
And when it fails, I can say, well, hey, it's the guy that wrote X and the girl that wrote Y. I can tell you, know? you uh, believe me, the navigating the political waters on the studio side is as <laughs> hazardous as anything you've ever done. <laughs> I had a writer who we had given a shot to, and he delivered a terrific, a terrific draft of this movie at Paramount. He delivered a draft. It was so good that we fired him to hire somebody else with a much bigger resume to put his name on it by running a comb through it so that stars and actors and agents would pay attention. And I had to make that phone call and say, look, dude, you did a terrific job. Now we have to go get that person on the cover page who's going to make everybody else pay attention because no one reads anymore. <sighs> and he was, and it, he was like, but that's madness. I said, I agree, but no one reads anymore. If it's rewrite by X, Y, or Z person with three nominations, it's going to move to the top of the stack just yeah. by dint of politics. And he has since forgiven me for that. And it wasn't with malice. It was just like, dude, this is I, like, my job isn't to, like, my job is not necessarily to always make you happy is to get yeah, the movie made, but by getting the movie made, you're going to have opportunity. The one final thing I'll say about that is in the next phase, I want to get into now you've got some juice. Now tell us how the sausage is really made. And that's a mm -hmm. great example of as a producer or even whoever, the senior member of a team, when you're trying to get something going, Unfortunately, it becomes your responsibility to be the school of hard knocks lecturer to the less experienced partner, whatever that is, a writer, you're the producer, you're developing for a writer, et cetera. And of course they take it because I took it the wrong way. And because you're so passionate, there's so many creative people here that they put their heart and souls into these scripts or whatever, short films. And to have the senior member of the team go, you know, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. It, it's a <laughs> tough moment, but I'm glad you told me the PS, which is God damn you, Craig. And then six months later, after they get banged around in the real world without you to protect them and they come back and they go, shit, man, you was right. You know, and I, I've done it myself. It's happened a number of times. Look, you never want to be a jerk. But sometimes decisions have to be made. And if you, you know, heavy is the crown. And if you yeah. want to wear it, you have to make those tough decisions because it's all about trying to get the movie made. As I told someone the other day, every day I wake up and try and keep my projects from committing suicide. Movies do not want to get made. They don't oh, want wait, to wait, live. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on until they do. Hopefully, if you're lucky enough to get into production, seeing it all the way through and at every moment, trying to manage all the elements that are desperately trying to make things screw up to get them back on point so that thematic intent is always going to be the center of why you're making any scene, why you're making any decision and why you're still making this movie as every week goes on and on. And that inverted pyramid of, of moves and opportunity gets narrower and narrower to you're on the last day of production. We are scrambling to try and get 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bags. So you walk out of Dodge with a movie under your belt as opposed to just a bunch of footage that you can't cut together. And then seeing it all the way through, I've had Final Cut in a couple of the movies that we've done. No, and you just need to make sure that you understand the process of making movies, not just on a creative level, but a technical level. Like, how do you cut something together? What actually works? And then likewise, dealing with, if you're on a studio side, marketing departments, understanding their challenges and needs, making sure that you are keeping them apprised of all the information coming through so that if they do want to do teaser trailers, they have images that make sense for what they want to anchor the campaign with, that there are visual effects shots that you've pulled up so that they're earlier in the pipeline so they can be the visual anchors for that, hopefully knock on wood, worldwide campaign. It's at every level, all the way through. Not because I'm a megalomaniac, although some would argue otherwise, because I like the process. It's all fun. It's all incredibly um, gratifying. I, I, I find it interesting when people say, I hate being on set. I really do. Because Never then why are that. you here? Yeah. You know, what did you That's want the to juice. do? That's like the stone saying, don't tour. Eh. Eh. Well, exactly. Like, well, look, if you want to make money, this is the last business you should get into. <laughs> Seriously. Like, <laughs> my, my, my next question was going to be, so you're a producer. Uh, how do you make money? That's, that's also well, the other thing. When I teach classes, I take them through this entire spiel. It's about 15 minutes long where I describe the process of finding a piece of material. And I go through the class and cast every member of the cast, every member of the class as you're an executive, you're an agent, you're a director, you're an editor, so that they all feel like they're participating in what is usually a seven-year process. Yeah, that, I think a lot of people don't. the sale of the script that. to getting it made 
and which the producer gets paid nothing. In fact, the moment that makes the class usually gasp with horror is I say, you worked for, let's say, 15 months getting the script to exactly where it needs to be with this guy who's still living in his parents' basement. But the script is great. Oh my God, it's sold for three against six, $300,000. How much does the producer get? Nothing. Mm-hmm. You get zero. And they just say, well, how do you live? I'm like, ain't that the bitch? Yeah. Ain't that the treasure? That's the challenge. It's, it's really, I don't think people understand. I don't, I don't think people understand how long it takes timeline. before the crazy you, the, timeline. before the cameras turn on. And by the and way, as a writer, after. Ryan, as a writer as well, and that's pretty accurate. Seven years when Craig gets his hand on it to, to be the prime mover. But we're talking about a lifetime before that where this writer is considering drafting whatever. So it really does. I mean, the older you get, I would say the more clear you are on the idea that life, and this is beyond filming, that life is time. And what you put your time to is what your legacy is going to be. And in the film context, a guy like you, Craig, there's a lot of unsung heroes. Producers get shit on the showboaters and the show up laters mm-hmm. and the jagoffs. But the, the more you know about film, the more you love guys like you, because it seems like, and we'll get into that in a second, it seems like early on, and maybe it's just inborn in you as an individual, that you operate from a point of empathy. And while Scott Rudin and his ilk are very effective at their jobs, I don't necessarily know that they operate from that point. So maybe there is a couple different ways to, to peel the onion, but you seem to operate from, and even though, and, I, and I've learned this too, hey, don't just yell at marketing. They have their own shit to deal with. Mm-hmm. What can you do to make their life easier? Well, this is, this is, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, we can talk about the sort of legendary vicissitudes of Scott and of Joel. Uh, and I as you said, they're enormously effective. Yes. But one of the things in, I have found is that everybody seems to cast studio executives as the enemy. Well, let's think about this from a, from a dramatic perspective. They share your same goal. They want to get a movie made. It's mm-hmm. just that, the hills they need to climb and the challenges they need to face may be different than the ones you are on your side of the fence. But ultimately, they want what you want. So your goal is to not fight with them. Your goal is to somehow gain their trust so you understand the challenges that they're facing and that then you can accommodate those challenges so that you can achieve what? The goal that you share of getting the movie made. Because if you fight all the time at every point, A, they're not going to invite you back. B, you probably won't get the movie made. Or C, if you do, it's going to suck because there's been nothing but conflict the whole way through. And the experience (laughs) of making the movie will suck. And too much compromise is the other way to fail. That's true. I mean, uh, there is always, well, this is the thing. I've all, uh, you always have to figure out what's really important in this, in, in, in any project. There's going to be one reason why you probably gravitated towards it. And when I hire directors, I often ask them, so what is the one scene in this script that made you say, my God, I think I want to do this? Like, if you're just here because it's an open assignment, I don't want to hire you. Because right. you're going to lose interest. It's that hard to get any movie made. There has to be a reason why you're going to wake up every day and do the hardest job on set. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing. And if they can very readily and quickly identify something that spoke to them, I know I have them in terms of their vested viable interest. However, and this is a mistake I've made one and a half times, I also have a scene that to me best demonstrates what the tone of the movie is. And tone is radically different. A friend of mine directed a movie called The Aggression Scale. It's about this autistic kid who realizes that burglars are breaking into his house and he systematically kills them in the most brutal of ways. But guess what? That's a horrifying, dark little horror movie. But it's also the exact same logline as Home Alone without the killing. Tone is everything. <laughs> that's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> in a movie. I was like, wait a second, is that Home Alone he's talking Exactly. About? But that's, that's why tone is so critical because you can all be making ostensibly the same movie in terms of the action that unfolds on screen in an empirical way. But how it's captured is what tone is. And if that director starts has a different vision of what that movie is tonally, you're never going to make the same movie. It's going to be a horrible experience. And in editorial, it's going to be a disaster. But same logline, though. Same logline, but you're not... So you have to basically be on board with each other tonally. Like, we're making the same... Tone is king. And you're right. It is the hardest thing. And it's, to me, the thing that any director is that they're going to bring an understanding of the tone to it because then they're investing themselves. 
and the movie becomes uh, 10 times better because of it. So, okay. Uh, so American, now- by the way, American Pie, when we met 70 directors, because like it was a mask, we'll get to like the, but like at least 70 people came in, everybody came in for that movie. The Whites Brothers came in and they never pitched a single joke. They never talked about why it would be funny. They talked about tone, theme, emotion, romance. They, they presented comps that weren't comedies. They said, this is why the movie works because it has heart because it has this. They pitched everything that wasn't the comedy because the comedy is on the page. But what's yeah. the other layer? What are the overtones? Okay, well, one time at band camp, I stuck a flute. <laughs> is it? We're getting caught. Hey, Jimmy. Just wanted to say sweet dreams. Yeah, yeah. Good night, Mom. I, I think he's trying to watch some illegal channels here. Illegal, illegal channels? This is just a bad reception. Huh? Oh, baby. What's that? You know what, dude? Just uh, give me this oh, and let's God. get this. Yeah. Oh. What the hell's the matter with this thing here? And look, they, they had never directed anything before. I think Paul had directed the off-Broadway show, but like the studio was willing to actually bet on them. Because they pitched the movie that we aspire to as the as opposed to the movie that we knew we had on page. And that was the critical difference and why they why why, why I'm talking to you now, most likely. Otherwise I'd be like <laughs> giving you change for fries. <laughs> so I just want to hammer home. Tone, tone, tone. Okay. I was just watching the Russo brothers. They have a thing, they talk about film and they keep coming back to that. Like so many films. Look, it's, we all know it's almost impossible to make a film. Just any film. Mm-hmm. Good film, bad yeah. film. Getting a movie made, period, is the miracle. Making it good is, it's, it, it's, it's, it's like a comet actually yeah, hitting it, the earth. It, it, yeah, and, and it's, that, it's that, you know, you could call it 5%, 2%, 1% between an adequate film or an okay film where they literally shot the script, got it together, got the cast, did all these very hard things that you just isolated. But... For me, myself, who just directed a feature for the first time at an advanced age, tone is so hard. And I think you're, maybe we could argue your most valuable asset, Craig, mm-hmm. personally, is just saying that. It's saying, hey, guys, don't lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. So Alex Collegian's new book coming out on Amazon will be called Tone, Tone, Tone. Tone. No, Tony, it's, it's Tony, called, Tony. his new movie is called Tone Alone. <laughs> and, uh, no, it's actually a musical with the soundtrack by Tony, Tony, Tony. The audio book, <laughs> the audio book will be literally four days long. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's stupid, but I'm glad you brought it up because it, it gave me chills. Anyway, it's sort I'm of sorry. like Warhol's Empire, but with just a single tone for 12 <laughs> hours. <laughs> All right. You set up 200 projects. Was the first one when you were like, holy shit, we're on something. No, and I'll tell you why. Because setting up a project, while it's a huge step in the process, is again, a, on average, a seven-year trajectory. So you cannot place incredible emotional value. You can say, excellent, now we get to work. Um, setting up projects is exciting, but it just means that the real work can begin. I think that the moment Did that, you know that then, though? Yeah. I'd okay. seen, I, I had seen enough happening. Like, remember, I wasn't personally setting up projects necessarily at Silver Pictures as a reader, but I was watching movies come together and realizing what a slog it was. Right. And, you know, the, 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 the choices and decisions made. So, um, I, yes, I took, uh, pleasure and I appreciated the moments, but you cannot hang a lantern on them and stare at it for hours because it goes away and it doesn't actually mean anything. You can't fool yourself into thinking, Oh, I set up a project and go make a movie. No, you're not. <laughs> now you're gonna have to really do the incredibly challenging lifting. But this is why I think American Pie is such an anomaly. That script was born out of a log line that we had. We kept an internal idea list that was about 15 pages long, every possible idea in the book, every Monday morning, we get the staff together. We just come, what's an idea for a movie? And the, the log line that we had was this little, you know, four guys try to get laid before they graduate because they're terrified of going to college as virgins. Got it. You know what it could or couldn't be, but it's completely, it's enough for you to go, okay, that could go a million different ways. When Adam handed in the script, we threw out everything but the first 15 pages because tonally it wasn't quite right. We spent some intense time, uh, I, Adam and Chris Bender and I sort of figuring out like the next iteration of it. And when that script went out, we had a bidding war. And oddly enough, Universal wound up overpaying for it because of a miscommunication between the executive who was spearheading the movement internally to get it made and the business affairs executive. There was a miscommunication. Like they overbid by 400 grand in one phone call. 
at which point, of course, we closed immediately, right? <laughs> right away. So we closed. We said they were closed. They sent us There's a confirmation email. There's, There's that, that luck, luck moment, but right? What, yes, but, yes, we'll take it. Yeah, we're like, we're at 600. The last bit was at 200. Fuck yeah, close, close. Like, don't even question. But what right. was interesting is that moment made the executive on the inside realize, oh my God, I have to get this thing made so I can write off that expense as quickly as possible. So from sale to shooting was six months. Wow. Fastest I've ever seen. I mean, it was a mad rush to judgment. Now, what was interesting, they realized very quickly that there were not going to be any stars in this. They had to make it for a price. And there was this weird thing called DVD that was really coming to the fore that they realized, who cares how it does? We'll make our money back in DVD because it's a sex comedy. That's easy. So they kind of left us alone. Like they didn't really like have a huge amount of notes. They didn't really go very granular and get into our junk about it. They said, well, let's go make the movie as long as you keep it at this price and you're done. So we were off happily making movie and we were like, oh, it's kind of working. This is funny. And the casting was great. It was originally Jonathan Taylor Thomas in the Jason Biggs role because the studio was like, well, what if we cast somebody coming off a of home improvement? Let's pass that kid. But we just, look, we met him a bunch of times. That's, super su- nice. that's such a different movie. Oh my, oh, super nice. So it was going to be Jonathan Taylor Thomas it's like a and Disney. Bill Macy. Uh, Bill Macy is his dad. And, wow. I like and yet Bill movie. Macy wanted a half million. And that wasn't going to happen. And Jonathan Taylor Thomas is a lovely guy. And he was a really nice kid. At the time. He was just a kid at the time, but it just didn't feel right. It just felt, like you said, a Disney version of it. So we really believed in Jason Biggs. And then Eugene Levy as his dad, I mean, of course, you know, and he was not at a half million dollars. So it all kind of came together the way it should have come together. It was one of the few times I've seen the studio say, you know what, don't just cast the star, cast the right person which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why we had that incredible cast. And then one of the reasons why it won the casting award for Ensemble that year, because it was just a great combination of people. They let and us do what we were going to do. Who was your executive then that was shepherding? Uh, Ali Brecker. Reporting to DeLuca though. This is the like- No, no, no. This is, a, this is, a, this is a universal. Oh, oh, right. Okay. But here's, so, what, but here's where it gets funky. So the studio at that point was up for sale. We had our first preview and that's really the moment when I knew that something was afoot because I, I don't want to go through all the ins and outs of how the preview process works, but let's just say that when we had our first preview and they started applauding after the opening pricey, just on the title alone, they had no idea who these actors were as we were all sitting in our seats going, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> we got 94 top two boxes across the board. It was ridiculous how well it tested with no names and no expectations. So, Suddenly, the, the studio's like, ooh, we got a live one here. Now, because the studio was on the auction block for being sold, the head of the studio who wanted to keep his job wanted to show that he's you know, going to try and save his job. So he said, okay, we had our preview in November. Let's release it in February. Now, you tell me, we just have a first cut and a first preview to actually finish post, get marketing in place right through the holiday season for a February release is insane. Wait, actually, you actually have to make prints and oh, no. ship them. No, you have cans. to like, like, you have to cut it together. You have to mix it. You have to actually figure out what marketing is going to do. And are they going to actually attach a little sex comedy to the Christmas releases? No, it doesn't <laughs> make any that- sense. Was that a time, though, like nowadays, if you get a movie released in January or February, that's kind of the place where they send movies to die? Well, it, seems like it was opposite. a little bit like that. But remember, they, this was, from their perspective, lightning in a bottle, and the executive is trying to keep his job. So he right. wants to release a movie. Now, he wants returns as fast as correct. possible. And in addition to that, they, were selling, they sold the foreign for the movie to what at that time was some entertainment for a flat $5 million because at that point, given their sort of P&Ls, the movie was in profit before it even was released. Wow. So from a, from a perspective of here's our portfolio for whether the studio is going to be a profit center, there you go. But that personally cost me $7 million, that one decision. It made $135 million internationally alone. Oh, my God. So that basically made the modern summer, summer, summer. Some entertainment became some entertainment yeah, uh, yeah, because of yeah. that. There was no, I wouldn't say there was no. Deal of a thing. lifetime. Deal of yeah. a lifetime. So uh, that's what was going to be. So we're scrambling. And we have no idea what we're going to do, except we start screening the movie as much as we can to try and get word of mouth going. So we mm-hmm. had dozens of screenings, all, every colleges across the country, with 10 critics and 200 screening kids. 10 critics 200 screening kids. So they would see it in the proper environment. We would not allow critic screening without a, uh, a recruited audience. So then the executive got fired. They moved the movie off of February. And we floated about 14 different release dates for the, the entire rest of the year. We, we were once going to open against the Star Wars reissue. Like we were, it was all over the map. And we finally landed the date we did. But what was interesting 
is when at the top of the year, when like these movies to watch out for, for the summer, so there's a little list coming out, keep an eye out for this movie. This little movie called American Pie kept showing up on all these lists because all the critics had seen it five months earlier and knew what it was. They knew what it was going to be. So it just was one of these things where, again, luck just happened. All of these events, I would not be here had the executive not wanted to put it into February, which forced us to have screenings, which forced us to have critics, which then he gets fired. All of these things, you just never know what's going to happen, except there's only one thing I could be responsible for, making the movie good. That's the one thing that I have some hand in. Everything else, you just got to play the game and play ball and deliver the goods. If you deliver the goods, you've armed people to do their jobs. You have this reaction. You having people trying to push the movie up. Oh yeah. As you've gone through like the rough cut and the and the first cut, were you like, "This is better than I thought it would be"? What were you? What was your mindset at that point? It was so low budget. We would screen dailies against the wall at the high school we were shooting at during lunch. We brought a thirty five million projector down and like screened it on the wall of the auditorium. We thought we were making a little movie that kind of worked. Our editor was calling us saying, guys, this movie is really sweet. It's really charming. Like, it's really going well. And she was really good at kind of keeping us uh, on the straight and narrow and making sure we got the coverage we needed. That's the only movie I've ever worked on. There were no reshoots. Did you? I love that it was a woman editor. Oh, yeah. Did you shoot in LA? We did. Okay. We did to the point where we had like one bit where there's a palm tree we can see in the background. So we had one of the extras stand on a bench so that his head just covered it up <laughs> so he couldn't see it. Like it was, there was a lot of uh, early, early digital remove. <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't need money for digital remove. Money for post. No, no, there was post VFX. That's what oh. I'm saying. But uh, again, another point that we love to bring up is that having all the money in the world does not make a better film. Some nope. of some of the scrappiest just like fixes along the way help you to hone that sort of desperation of wanting the movie done right there was a moment in the in the we had like um we had a splinter unit and the dp was actually taking a bicycle going back and forth trying to sort of manage like these two separate and distinct units although they were close enough that you could try and get it unfortunately he inadvertently left one particular filter in the camera at a unit and we had to reshoot that scene the next week on the last day we were at that location so one of our actors had gotten sort of sick over the weekend. He's like, I'm going to knock this cold out. And on his way down to the set, he swallowed 10 zinc tablets. So when we call him, he's in his trailer, vomiting, unconscious on the floor. The poison EMT has come down because he'd poisoned himself with zinc. So now we have to shoot the, reshoot the scene. And the principal actor, who's the focal point of the scene, isn't there. So that's where the rubber hits the road. And we all sat down. And this goes back to my earlier point. What's this scene about? What's the point of this scene? Not just in terms of story, but in terms of character. And we completely rewrote the scene in five minutes so that they're talking about the lead character who's not there and getting all the information across. And it's in the movie because it had to be. We had no choice. (laughs) And, you know, the crazy thing, if you could see behind the curtain on how movies actually get made and what's just outside of frame, Everybody in the audience would be flabbergasted that that this is the system we have chosen to make movies with. It's insane. It makes yeah. no sense. But and this also goes to what we talked what we've talked about before, which is there's the movie that's written, there's the movie that's shot, and then there's the movie that's edited. This yep. all falls into that. You have three bites at the apple to try and get it right. And by the way, in that process, who's the one person that's there at all three? And producer. the answer is the producer. God. Yep. Right? The writer. <laughs> yeah, the God, writer, yeah. The movie gods. No, no, actually, no. the movie gods there well, who are right. quietly and, urinating on your hopes and dreams. And, no, 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 no. But here's the thing they, it's Sisyphus, okay? Mm-hmm. You have the ball, you're pushing, you're pushing, it's falling, it's pushing, it's falling. And you said that before. But I want to clarify because obviously we've all, everybody in the business, everybody outside the business, we have dreams, we try to achieve them, and everything in the world stands in your way. Until it doesn't. And then there's a moment, and I do believe in the film gods, and I do believe they're looking down at people like Craig, and they're saying, is he worthy? Is she worthy? Are they ready for this? And if you keep pushing, and like you said, you're professional, you're courteous, but you're completely undeniable, eventually the film itself, who I characterize as a woman because I'm a man, she starts to feel that love. And all of a sudden, 
you feel the wind at your back and not in your face. And then that critical mass starts to build in your favor, right? You get the ball up to the peak and you're completely worn out. And then all of a sudden, someone else joins you. I believe too, Craig. And again, and again, until you're all Spartacus and you're all grabbing hands and you're all bringing it to the, to the finish line. But there is, a, do you, I mean, do you know what I'm saying, Craig? That moment when you get that perfect draft or when you get that director you want, you know? I understand what you, uh, yes, I agree with what you're saying. I know that there are singular moments along the way that can sort of add gravitational pull to a project to make it so that it's hard for people to say no because they're not just saying no to a script. They're saying no to a script, a director, a producer, an actor. Like you have to sort of get critical mass so that it becomes a harder political proposition. I mean, how many executives do you know who have long, luxurious, and well-paid careers by saying no to everything? Except the things the right that they thing. literally can't say no to. Yeah. They say saying no to the right things is the is the key to a completely long and mediocre career. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I guess that's one of the reasons why I, I have, you know, been sniffed around at for studio jobs. But I realize I I want to fight for things too much. Like I, I like if I if I find something in a script that I like, I'm gonna fight for it, even if it's not necessarily going to be an easy path. And that's just the wrong attitude for a studio executive. You need to have the easiest path. And also spending 50% of your day trying to sort of politically navigate to keep your job as opposed to actually doing your job sounds like a terrible existence to me. Thanks for joining us today on How I Got Greenlit. Join us next week when producer Craig Perry continues to enlighten us on all his wisdom about the film business, including... His most influential film, the 1984 classic Videodrome, directed by David Cronenberg. Next Chapter Podcasts.